tonight. This morning, we're going to start a new series. I'm really excited about it. It's entitled Arise and Build. Do you have an outline? You need an outline this morning because we're going to actually do something different as we close this morning. We're going to stand up and change the position where we are in order to pray this prayer on the very bottom. So if you have one, you need it. So I encourage you to, to grab a hold of, of one. I'm going to grab this one. Can I take that one? Perfect. Um, so at the very bottom, we're going to be looking at that. But this morning, as you can see, we're starting a series out of the book of Nehemiah. It's the Old Testament. And in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is rebuilding. There's a rebuilding project going on. Something was broken in the Old Testament, and Nehemiah was the person to be raised up in order to rebuild what it was broken. And that's what we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks, arise and build. But the question is, what are we building? I mean, really, what, what's, what is the building project? In Nehemiah chapter 1, this is the way it begins. Let's take a look at it. And then I want to talk a little bit about that. It says, the words of Nehemiah, the sons of Helichi. Now it happened in the month of Shislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanai, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Now, Many of us don't have the, the context for what in the world's going on here. What are they talking about? Nehemiah himself is actually not even in Israel at the time. He's in Persia. In fact, what's already happened and transpired in Israel is that the country had been decimated. Assyria came in in 722 B.C. Babylon came in in five, about 589 B.C. and wiped out the country, the north and the south, Israel was decimated. And now the Persians are in control, and many of its young people are in exile. Oftentimes a nation would come in and take over another nation, and it would basically enslave or take away its young and intelligent and redoctrinate them to a whole other culture so that that nation, the old nation, wouldn't continue on, but the new nation would in its place. And so this was the plan of each of these nations was to indoctrinate and take over and wipe out Israel, completely wipe them out. And yet what's happened is that God promised to return them and restore them to their nation. Seventy years would pass as they were in exile. And now after 70 years, they would return. And if, the, if you understand this, this uh, Old Testament history, Ezra, the, the, the book right before Nehemiah, actually describes them, first of all, coming back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Let's reestablish our place of faith. It's our identity. It's who we are. And then the people were restored, and, and then now 70 years have gone by since that, that time. And the wall around this city, this important city that represented the identity of who Israel is, is still decimated, completely destroyed. Worship wasn't happening. People were disunified, disconnected, brokenness all around them. And Nehemiah hears the story that there's still decimation. There's no unity. There's no purpose in the, in the, in the, in the nation of Israel. It's lost its focus. It's lost its objective. And so Nehemiah hears the story. 
And I, I wonder how you would respond. I wonder how I would respond hearing the news. The city still remains desolated. What would you do? Gosh, that's a bummer. I hope somebody goes and does something. I hope somebody goes there and starts rebuilding that wall and secures that area so that it can rebuild and restore. I wish somebody would do that. It's oftentimes how we respond. We hear the news and we hope somebody's going to take care of that. And yet in this story, the story of Nehemiah, he's the one who desires to be the answer to his own prayer. He's the one who wants to go to restore it. So he hears the story. He's the one who wants to actually go. And he has a vision. And you know what? Here's what I learned about it. The wall's broken down. It's going to be about a building project. It's, it's, it, they're going to build a wall. And when they build this wall, they're building a new identity for Israel. They're, they're, they're bringing security and safety, of course, yes. But it was so much more than that. It was not just about a wall. It wasn't just a building project to get a wall up so that the city could be this new, powerful, great city, Jerusalem, that would house the people of God in order to become the country and the nation of God. That wasn't what it was about. It was far more than that. It was about identity. It was about people coming together to become the people of God again, to be a beacon of light, to be hope for all the nations, for the poor, the brokenhearted, the foreigners. See, it was, it was to restore them to what they were originally to be, Israel, a nation for all other nations, a people for all other people. See, that's what it was about. And Nehemiah knew in order to accomplish that, we've got to build this wall. So let's do it together. So it wasn't really a wall building project as it was a people building project. It wasn't so much about the wall as it was, it was about the people. The people of God coming together to rebuild its own nation. To become a beacon of light again for all other nations. To bring hope to all the other nations. That's what it, a, lot of, a lot of churches study Nehemiah and they start a building project. And it makes a lot of sense. Like, hey, they're, they're building a wall. So we're going to start a building project. We're going to raise $4 million, $20 million. And that's not what it's about this time around for us as a church. We don't, we're not building a building. We're not buying a building. We're not raising money. What we're about is raising up people to join with us around a vision to become that beacon of light for the poor and the brokenhearted and the foreigners and for all people to come into the community of God. Arise and build, Nehemiah says. Arise and build. And that's what we're going to look at is the, 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 the tools in which Nehemiah used to rally the people to rebuild a community of people for the world. That's what it's about. Thriving relationships. Relationships within our own community and relationships beyond. How do we do that? What does that start with? We're going to look at that over several weeks as we move through Nehemiah. It's a remarkable story, but it begins with one person. Let me tell you a story. Back in 1903, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. You know what, you know what happened. It was the first air flight. Really, actually, it wasn't the first air flight. There were many before that. There were many people that tried to work on air flight. But the first successful flying machine is credited to the Wright brothers. We know that. 
But the interesting part about the story is that they weren't the most well-funded. They weren't the ones that had the publicity. It was a person named Samuel Langley. Samuel Langley was given a government subsidy. He was funded by the United States government. He had all the publicity he needed, and he actually attempted flight before the Wright brothers, and his failed. All the resources, all the money, all the planning, and yet his didn't succeed. The Wright brothers, two bicycle repairmen, without the resources, accomplished it. And the question could be asked, how did that happen? How were they able to do that? These two young men had a vision, and they held on to their vision, and they kept on. They kept moving forward. In fact, for four years, they experimented with kites and gliders and worked out the problems in order to accomplish air flight. It takes one person with a vision, but don't lose your vision. You got to keep going. You got to keep, keep experimenting. You got to keep thinking about it. You got to keep moving forward. And that's what Nehemiah does to build, in our case, a vision around thriving, healthy, dynamic community of people for all of the South Bay, connected, doing their part to be a place where God's word is heard and people are able to understand what it means to be in a relationship with Christ. I mean, that's, that's what we're about. That's what we're building. But it's about us all doing a part. And so what Nehemiah is going to do is he's going to actually recruit an entire community of people in order to rebuild the wall. He's going to do it in 52 days. And he's going to recruit an entire community and every person plays their own role. Everybody's involved. It's one of the most brilliant development projects in all of history. And really, if you think about it, no funding, he's living in a foreign land, he's the cupbearer to a king, a Persian king, he can't just leave when he wants, doesn't have the money, doesn't have the unity of the community, there are enemies all around that don't want this thing to happen. Could you, it was against all odds. Nehemiah accomplishes the impossible, absolutely impossible. So the question could easily be asked this morning, what's broken in our society? I mean, really, what are we trying to fix? What is it that we're trying to fix? I was reading a Wall Street Journal article the other day about the new Gen Z generation from 1990, born 1990 to 2000. This new generation of young people are being, are being prepared in colleges to, to now take on work positions in our uh, communities and all around the country and, and world. They enter, enter into our, world, our workforce. So these Gen Z, how are they different than the millennials? That's the question. What's the difference? They're ready to go. The economy looks great. There's a lot of job opportunity. But what is the uniqueness and the unique challenges behind the Gen Z generation? This article went on basically to say, one article said that they're socially challenged. It's, it's a social issue. See, they're educated. They're cautious. They're definitely more cautious. Actually, in college campuses, partying is down. So it's, there's a decrease in partying because they're, they're far more cautious around certain activities and behaviors that could potentially be dangerous to their ultimate goal, success. 
And so, but what is this whole social issue? One, one particular article said that they're cautious. And what does it mean to be socially cautious? They're, they're, they're far more, what, what the article went on to say, controlled by social media. Relationship happens through social media, not through personal connection, not through relationship. And one of the challenges of the new generation coming in is they're not socially connected as well as other generations. And one of our jobs, I believe, as a church, as a community, is to invite the next generation into social relationship, into connection, into community, to develop their faith so that they would be effective in whatever God calls them to do. That's the challenge. See, there's always a challenge. And I see that over and over again. I, I see people, I would ask the question, if we have more money, why aren't we happier? If, if income's going up, job, job, there's more jobs, more job opportunity, why are people still depressed? Why is there so much anxiety? And why is there so much communication that people feel isolated and alone. See, I think we have to have a vision. And the question could be, what is the vision of our church? I mean, really, what is it? I mean, what are we trying to accomplish? What is that? And my vision is like a building project. Arise, all of us, and let's build. Let's build a thriving community for the next generation to socially connect them, to bring them together relationally all over the South Bay, whether it's here on the beach or maybe another third location, but we want to continue to permeate the South Bay with places people can come to interact and connect in relationship with God. That's what people need today. That's the missing ingredient. And we just continue to push out as we care for people and then just extend that love beyond our borders into the rest of the world, into the South Bay, Los Angeles, and the world. I mean, that's our vision. That's what we're trying to accomplish. We've been saying around here the last couple of weeks, our motto as a church. Remember, we've talked about mottos. Here it is. No one should live life alone. No one should live life alone. There's a lot of implication for that. I mean, think about it. No one should live life alone. You shouldn't have to go through life disconnected where no one knows your name. No one knows who you are. You may even come here and still feel like you're doing life alone. And that's what grounded groups are about. That's where our men's Bible studies and our prayer groups and our women's groups and all the things that we offer, they're not programs. They're places for people to connect, to get connected so that they would understand what it looks like to be in relationship with God and relationship with other people. That's what it's about. So Nehemiah had a vision. What's your vision? I mean, think about it. As we begin Nehemiah, we're studying his vision. He wants to rebuild a wall, and he's going to gather people. What's your vision for your life? I could easily ask you that question. Say, do you have a vision for your family? Do you have a vision for the people who work for you? Do you have a vision for the people in your classroom or on the, or on the football field or the soccer field if you're a coach or, or you're an assistant? I mean, what's the vision that you have for the world in which you live? The people you interact with, your own life, but also the people you connect with. What's your vision? I mean, we begin there. And be careful, there's a big difference between vision and dreaming. Stanley, Andy Stanley wrote a book called Visioneering, and he says basically there's a difference. If you're a visionary, you're a doer. If you're a dreamer, you're a thinker. 
If you dream and all you do is dream, you're thinking about the future, but you're not doing anything different about it. If you're a visionary, you're thinking about the future and how you can play a part to change it. See, you don't like the status quo. You don't want to live in the status quo. You see a preferred future that's different and you want to change that. That's Nehemiah. He was a visionary through and through. It's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of time. You're going to go through a desert experience. See, because there's going to be a weeding out of your vision and God's vision. There's going to be a, a, maybe a, a change, a development, a, a conforming to what God really has for you. And it's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of time. But you don't give up. Just because you have a vision doesn't mean you're going to go execute it tomorrow. It's going to take time. Nehemiah saw that. And we're going to study chapter 1 this morning. The first tool that Nehemiah actually uses to develop his vision. I mean, th th these will be true for all of us. These will be true for any single person, no matter where you find yourself in connection whether it's in the workplace or in the schools or whether it's on an athletic field or even in your home. These principles apply to all of us. One of the best leaders I've ever seen. I mean, you think of it in terms of a CEO or a teacher or a coach. I mean, we could be studying Simon Sinek or Gladwell or Drucker, Covey, Collins, any one of them. This guy has something on all of them. I mean, remarkable remarkable leadership. I mean, just even chapter one, when we get into it, we're going to look at chapter one as the first building block or the first tool that he uses. But if, if you notice, if you keep moving in chapter two, there's, there's, a, there's a time of waiting in chapter one. And then in chapter two, he goes to explore and there's some planning. And then chapter three, he's got to recruit people to join with his vision. And then chapter 4, he begins building, and then there's opposition to that building. And the opposition continues all the way through chapter 5 and 6 and 7 until finally they're finished building. And then chapter 8, all the way to 13, he begins to now develop this new community deeper in their spiritual walk with God. And I love Nehemiah's heart. He's a brave man. He's a courageous individual. I mean, he prays against his enemies. I mean, this is powerful. In one particular prayer, he actually prays that God would not forget their, forgive their iniquities. If they stand against God's plans, don't forgive them. I mean, that's pretty bold praying. I don't know. I haven't seen that a lot in the Old Testament, those kinds of prayers. But he goes after it. And another... In another situation, the enemies want him to come down and negotiate. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this wall-building project. Let's discuss it. And he says to them, I cannot come down for I'm doing a great work. I'm not coming down to talk to you. I'm doing something far more important than sitting there in, on the ground level talking to you about whether we should build, be building this or not because I have a vision. That's what God does, empowers him. I mean, it's fantastic. He, he even arms his workers. Every single worker had an ability. Either someone guarded him or they held a spear in one hand and a trough in the other. I mean, he understood how to get the job done. And then the building completes and then spiritual renewal. So where does it all begin? 
Where does all this begin? It begins with one thing. Look in chapter one and we're going to read it. Here it is. Here's the answer. So Nehemiah hears that the wall's broken down. He has a vision. And what's the first thing he does? The very first thing. The only thing. Chapter one. Here it is. Verse four. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before God of heaven. And I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great awesome God who preserves the covenant and the loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. You have not, we, you have not, you, against you, and have not kept the commandments, your statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servants Moses. Verse 8, remember the Lord which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, then those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of heaven, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Who's the man? Who's the man? See, the end of the prayer, Nehemiah says, before I go before the king, before I go before the king, I pray. Before I launch out in my vision, with my vision, I pray. It's one thing. The very one thing that makes Nehemiah successful. It's the beginning. See, everything is determined on one thing. It's true in our lives. I mean, that's what God's word says. Prayer opens up the impossible. Everything becomes possible according to God's will, through prayer. That's what he's calling us to do. We begin by prayer. In fact, Tim Keller in his book on prayer, in his very first chapter, cites a study in 2004. And he says, he discovers that 30% of atheists prayed at some point in their life. Another study revealed that 17% of people who do not confess God, have no faith in their lives, pray regularly. People pray. People understand there's something about prayer. Mark Batterson wrote a book called Whisper, and he talks about the neuroscience behind prayer, how it aligns us. It aligns our emotions. It aligns our, our thinking. It aligns our ability to get behind something. Prayer works. Prayer could change businesses. Prayer can change classrooms. Prayer could change colleges. Prayers can change families. Prayers can change athletic teams. 
prayer changes things. If we just simply did one thing as a nation, if corporations just began every meeting with prayer, I mean, people obviously pray. I mean, there's a lot of people who pray. Not everybody prays. We're not all praying for the same thing. We're not all praying to the same God. But we're praying because we believe that it does something. We realign ourselves to a new goal, a new objective. It realigns our ability to think and to act and to move forward with greater precision and power. And so what if we tapped into that all throughout our communities? Nehemiah does that in his community. Now he knows God listens. And so he begins with this prayer. Cyril Barber says that prayer is the greatest force on the earth. It's the hardest thing to do because it requires us to trust God and not ourselves, right? It's hard. It's hard to put yourself in a position of prayer because you have to wait. You have to wait on somebody else. Yet what we find is it's the most rewarding thing we could do because of the results. So how do we do it? Well, Nehemiah actually gives us a model right here. In chapter 1, as he outlines, outlines, outlines his own prayer, he's giving us four ways in which we can pray. I just want to walk through those with you. Look at them. In verse 5, look what he says. It begins with this. I beseech you, O God of heaven, after all this fasting and weeping and mourning, by the way, God hears us even through our weeping. In fact, you're probably more aligned with your prayer when your emotion is behind it. And also fasting. Think about fasting a second. Fasting is going without food so that you, the hunger in you, that hunger is putting you in a greater awareness of what you really need. And as you begin to pray, the, the fasting actually produces a greater, accentuates your prayer life a greater depth of prayer. And so Nehemiah put himself in that position and he begins, I beseech you, Lord, O God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayers of your servants which I am praying before you today. See, he begins with praising God for his loving kindness. That's where he begins. He begins by adoring God. See, what is it that you adore? What's the one thing that you adore above all other things? That's going to be on your mind. That's what you're thinking about. That's what you're meditating on. That's what you're praying about. You're praying about the, your greatest adoration. And what we find in this passage is that God is his greatest adoration. You are my loving kindness. And so he begins with ex, explaining or, or, or demonstrating that God is the greatest loving kindness. God is the mighty power in his life. That's the thing in his life that he's focused on. And he begins there, and then notice where he moves into. So from verse 5, it moves to verse 6 into a confession. So after he adores God for who he is in his life, he then says, I now confess not only my sins, but also the sins of the nation. Do you notice that? It's very, very specific. He includes himself. We have sinned greatly. We have disobeyed your commands. We have stepped. Confession is good for the soul. And Nehemiah knows that. 
In order to, for God to realign ourselves for God's purposes, we have to begin with confession. So there's a confession here. Actually, one of the greatest confessions in all the Bible written out for us is in Ezra chapter 9. Just prior to this, Ezra 9 has prayed a prayer of confession. And we're going to pray that this morning as we close this morning. But it says in verse 9, but now a brief moment. Here it is. At the evening, I offered and arose my, in my humiliation a prayer. Even with garment and robe torn, I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord. And I said, oh God, I'm ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you. My God, for my iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt have grown even to the heavens. So Ezra says that our, prayer, our confession needs to go before the Lord because our sins have gone beyond that. And they've, they've gone beyond God himself. And we've, we've separated ourselves from God. We've disobeyed God. And so he offers a confession. He calls it a peg in the holy place. It's a way to get in back into relationship with God. You know, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins. In Psalm 51, David himself says that his sins have separated him from God. And he says, cleanse me, O God. Purify my heart. Restore me the joy of my salvation. and Don't take the Holy Spirit from me. He has to go through a process of confession to get back in relationship with God. That's where it begins. And then third, God's mercy, verse 9. If you notice in chapter 1 of Nehemiah 1, 9, he continues, but if you return to me and keep my commands and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather. I will gather you again and bring you to the place where I've chosen for you to be. See, there's mercy. There's mercy. He now moves into a thanksgiving of God's mercy in his life. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, there's mercy. Thank you, there's forgiveness. Thank you that I can recover from this. Thank you, Lord. And then finally, he ends with what I call supplication. Do you see that? His request is in the very last verse. It says this. It says, your name might be revered above all other names. May your servant be successful today and grant him compassion before this man. In other words, my request is, is that God would hear, that God, you would hear my prayer and you would open up the eyes and the heart of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, and allow him to send me to go rebuild the wall. Notice in this prayer life that Nehemiah is not praying for a miracle. He's praying for an opportunity. There's a big difference, isn't there? See, God's going to do the miracle in chapter 2. But the difference is there's, there's miracles and there's opportunities. And often what happens in a prayer life is that it actually changes us from thinking, God, will you raise up somebody else to go do something for somebody? To God, will you send me? You become the answer to your own prayer when you pray opportunities. Lord, if there's a way, send me. The opportunity, how can I go? How can I be used? See, that's what God's doing is that he's changing Nehemiah because Nehemiah says, I want to be the one. So prayer is the way for us to get into what God's doing. And he prays for an opportunity. So I guess as we close this morning, I've been thinking a lot about this and my prayer life has really um, 
changed a lot. It's gotten a lot more specific. I've read several books on this, but, but having gone through this last year of illness with a lot of weeping and prayers in the middle of the night, I feel like the Lord kind of has given me this, this one idea, John 15, 5, to abide in him. Wait on me. Wait on me. You are in the midst of a difficult set of circumstances. Wait on me. Abide in me. Abide in me. And I read a book called Unhurried Life this, this last year that continues to kind of retrain my mind in my prayer life. And in it, Henry, he quotes Henry now and he says that basically we miss God's, what God's doing in our lives and God's presence in our lives through our busyness. When we get busier, we actually choke it out. It's like an artery. Prayer and waiting opens it up, opens up opportunity. Busyness closes it down and, and strangles it out. And so there's, a, there's an unhurried pace of approaching your life that prayer helps us enter into. And then, then we, we go into this process of prayer that Nehemiah gives us, which is beautiful. And I wrote next to that in your outline, A-C-T-S, it spells acts. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. It's exactly what Nehemiah did. It's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to close this morning, and we're going to do that. We're going to adore God for his loving kindness in our lives. We're going to confess our sins. Confession is good for the soul. If people would just simply confess, it would be so good for us. Thanksgiving, we're going to thank God for his mercy. And then there's supplication. We're going to actually ask God for what it is that's burdening each and every one of us. You have a burden. I know you do. Everybody has a burden. What's the burden? See, behind the vision, it begins with a burden. What's the burden? What is the thing that God has given you? So let's do that this morning as we close. And I want to do this in a unique way because it basically says confession is about, about um, changing the way we think. It's metaneo, to repent. It's changing the way you think. And so I think let's change our position. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back here, if this works, and I'm going to read this prayer. We're going to read it together. And I want you to stand. So let's all stand. And I want you to kind of move this direction and look this way at me. So just kind of come out in the hallways here, coming out kind of in the, out in this, in the uh, aisles. And let's turn around. Let's change our position. And in changing our position, we're thinking about actually changing something. We want to think differently. Maybe God's giving you a new vision. Maybe he's pouring into your heart right now a burden. Maybe you want to be part of what God is doing at the river. And all throughout this next month uh, and next month, we're going to be studying Nehemiah, and we're actually going to be talking about all of our places and all of our roles that we play in rebuilding and building a solid foundation of a church for this community. And uh, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts. We're going to actually have a ministry festival, and it's going to be exciting. We're going to talk about all the people that are involved in ministry all throughout our church. But it begins with a vision. So let's pray. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, 
and supplication. When we get to confession, when we get to confession, we're going to read this together. So, Father, we do adore you. We adore you this morning, and we thank you for your loving kindness in our lives. You are a mighty, powerful God. You have sustained us. We can all think of people in our lives who you have poured into. We, we can all think of people that have been given long life, that have been given uh, amazing lives, even in the, the length that they've had. Remarkable impact. We can think, Father, of our own families and how you've blessed our families and even our own lives this morning. There are so many things we can thank you for. You are a mighty and powerful God. So we adore you, first of all. And second of all, Father, we want to confess, and we know that it's good for our souls that we want to bring before you whatever it is that's standing in the way between you and our vision and maybe the burden that we have. And we're not going to go anywhere until we really get this out and get come clean and come back in a relationship with you. And so we begin there, and we're going to read this together. And so let's read it together as I, I'll read it out loud and just along with, with me, just um, follow along and let's read this together. Oh God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. We have forsaken your commandments. Our hearts are filled with abominations, filling up the land from end to end with impurity. We have forfeited our inheritance. We have disregarded your plea for us to return and repent. We repent with weeping and mourning, fasting, prayer. Your loving kindness prevails. We are forgiven and invited to inherit your blessing for the sake of your calling on our lives. Thank you, Lord. And so now, Lord, we enter into the third area, thanksgiving, and we thank you. We do thank you that there's mercy. We thank you there's forgiveness. We thank you that, as Lamentations 3.23 says, this is every single day, every single morning, your loving kindness is renewed to us every morning. It's restored to us. You desire to return us back into your presence. And so in an unhurried place, in a quiet place, we thank you. And we believe, God, that we now receive your grace and your mercy in our lives to be restored. Thank you, Father. Maybe it's a, a broken heart. Maybe it's just a wandering heart or a rebellious heart that we confess. But, Lord, you renew our heart, Ezekiel says. You give us a clean heart, a living heart, not a heart made out of stone, but a living heart. So thank you for that. And Lord, now we bring our request before you. And I know there's lots of requests, and I'm just going to give some time right now this morning. There, there's a burden on your heart. There's somebody to your family, or your workplace, maybe this church. Maybe it's your grounder group, and you want to pray for your grounder group. And there's oppositions, schedules, and people's interests, disinterests. There's all sorts of things that might get in the way, the man that could get in the way. And yet this morning we want to bring that before you. So Father, we, we bring that right now.